0: is um Paul Gravett's and um Peter Stanbury's um um imprint, I guess. They were better known in the eighties and early nineties for publishing stuff by Eddie Campbell and the first Neil Gaiman stuff. And then they went on hiatus for a few decades and then came back and did um stuff by Gary and Warren Police and then my book was the last one they did. I think I broke them. <laughs> but um yeah, so they published There's No Time at the Present, um, which was a comic I self published episodically over eight years, and then they published this beautiful collection um a few years ago. So but yes, I think Why Don't You Love Me is probably my highest profile thing yet, I guess. I found the
1: Apographette uh interview that right, that you did, I guess some some time ago. Mm-hmm. Um What a what a great champion of comics.
0: Yeah, he's brilliant, and uh yeah, it was really flattering when he, um, uh, you know, asked to publish There's No Time at the Present, because I was a big admirer of Escape um, magazine. I don't know if you've ever encountered it, but it was pretty formative for me during my teenage years, Um yeah, that sort of rapid expansion of comics in the 80s, I felt I went through from just sort of pottering around with Marvel comics, and then just discovering this whole world of comics that unraveled around me, including all these British creators and then sort of, in you know, self-published comics. Uh, yeah. I think this is probably largely a, an artifact
1: of, of geography, but I'm obviously familiar with a lot of the things that they publish. And I do have this um, uh, top shelf here in the States, put out this giant Eddie Campbell uh, Alec collection uh, probably about 10 years ago. That's sitting on my bookshelf. So, so sort of through osmosis and having read a lot of these things in an entirely different
0: form, but, but less so the magazine. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was a revelation to me when I was younger. Um, You know what it's like when you're in your teens, you sort of, when you get discover something, it sort of seems to unravel a whole world, doesn't it, of stuff you hadn't previously encountered? Which is um, escape was an important part of for me. Um, yeah. So years later, when I got to know Paul and he offered to publish the book, it was uh, thrilling. It's a good endorsement as well. If you, if someone who's published Eddie Campbell and Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean and Fidelia says, can I publish your, you know, book? It's it's quite, quite nice.
1: Obviously there were a revelation for you that first time around. It can't be overstated how important physical publishing was in terms of discovery, you know, prior to the internet. I think a lot of that gets lost now. It's really easy to go down the rabbit holes and read everything, a single thing a person has been, has written, which it wasn't in those days, but the, so so there was that and then it, it, the just the idea of paul being uh interested in and attracted to your work and then publishing it is a huge validation definitely
0: definitely and when you t- do comics it's quite a solitary thing isn't it so you don't and if you're if you're in any way healthy most people you interact with probably aren't into comics they're interested in other things because that's what most people do and so you don't really know you have no sense of how good or bad you may or may not be. You just have to sort of you drive yourself through faith, basically, or bloody mindedness, I think. And uh so when something like that happens, it's um yeah, it's it's nice.
1: I've always gotten the impression that maybe there's a little bit less of a stigma in terms of comics in, in Europe more broadly than there is here. Um I, I don't know about the UK specifically, but I was, as, as I mentioned to you prior to this conversation, I was in, unfortunately I was in Las Vegas last week for work and I was wearing a, one of those new, uh, Love and Rockets, uh, 40, 40th anniversary shirts with a Gilbert, Gilbert drawn rooster on it. And the,
0: Oh yeah. I know the one. Yeah. Is it issue <laughs> 13. Like
1: yeah. Oh God. Such a nerd. Th- that's it. Exactly. And, and the, you know, the woman behind the the, I guess receptionist who who was checking me in um, asked me what it is, and I had you know it's it's so weird after all these years, I still had that moment of pause before I just said,
0: "Oh, it's from a comic book." And uh, yeah, she st- she had all sorts of images rush through her head, most of which may not have been flattering about your about your personal circumstances.
1: <laughs> well, what she said, and 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 actually, I do think that this sort of that this puts it into an interesting perspective, you know, she was, she she was, she was an older woman. I, I, you know, I guess probably older, older than me, at least probably if I had to guess in her, in her fifties, um, she said, Oh, uh, my husband reads comics. I, I guess I'll have to check them out.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah,
1: I think maybe to her, it's a, a, you know, probably a, a bit of a silly hobby, but also it's been interesting to see, Again, at least here in the States, the way comics have gone mainstream, but in a very different way. It's really the sort of, you know, exactly the things that I think were being mocked early on, the superhero comics. Those are the things now that that everybody feels okay reading. And that's due, obviously, in large part to, you know, the fact that every single major film that comes out at this point is, is
0: based on a Marvel or DC comic. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean... I can enjoy a Marvel or DC comic, well, in the past, like, you know, and it's I always used to think that this sort of like superhero language of shared universes and the such uh, and the soap opera elements just wouldn't translate to the cinema. The main not mainstream public just wouldn't put up with it. There's something about comic readers that makes them – you know inclined towards this sort of storytelling and then i guess the last 10 years or so have totally proved me wrong that the real general public loves this stuff they just needed it packaged in a way that they would accept it i've fallen off you know i used to, i i used to
1: in the early days i guess of the uh, marvel cinematic universe we, we did a You know, fairly decent job watching. You know, at least some of the bigger ones. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not very interested in these days. But it is interesting to see now them fall into a lot of the same traps that I think you know superhero comics really ended up falling into over the decades. Issues of continuity and you know coming up with these really silly ways to time travel and you know Mm. to, to reboot characters and things like that. It's it's sort of it's funny that after about you know a dozen or fifteen years of that happening, right now they're suddenly falling <laughs> into all of these these kind of the, the, these large issues that end up happening when you really have to maintain continuity over the course of decades.
0: Well, they got there quicker. The movies, didn't they? I think the comics, the Marvel comics, weren't convoluted for at least twenty or thirty years, but the movies got there in half the time. Somehow, they should be ashamed of themselves they should have been mindful to avoid it.
1: Obviously this exists in comics as well, but this this is definitely an artifact of the way big blockbusters act is that you have to keep heightening the consequences and they they got pretty quickly from bad guy to Thanos to, you know, whatever sort of cosmic thing they're in right now and I I don't I, I honestly don't know
0: how they get out of this. No. No. I think there's a oh God. Um, i'm I'm just finally disappointed in myself that, but I actually really love this sort of conversation <laughs> I don't really read superhero comics and haven't since I was a teen, but people who with
1: very with very sort of like nerdy opinions and some attachment to that um who now have sort of a i don't know if you're in the same boat but ha- but are now kind of detached from the movie versions you know it
0: it, it is sort of interesting to watch it play out uh, well I, th- I think um I've heard a rumor that they probably and to do a minor reboot that will allow them to recast even dead characters, I think. But um, um, but it feels a shame that they would do that. I think when um, they killed off Tony Stark and everything was implied that that's it, done, no more Tony Stark. Which you know, whereas there'll always be a Batman and there'll always be a James Bond. You know, that 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 seemed quite impactful. So. And, but, and that it seemed that the the way they'd done Marvel films up until that point, they could have continued for a long while without running out of momentum, but they seem to have gone a bit crazy and lost focus in, in more recent couple of years, I think. But, um, but yeah, it's superhero stuff. There's always a way out, isn't there really? Cause there's no real rules. I guess ultimately you can just change the boundaries shift them quite easily can't you
1: once they get to the point where they're making moves out of the eternals i
0: yeah yeah
1: or, or you know the Kirby stuff and and um you know haven't you know there, there, there's certain ways in which i think they've you know they, they've done a decent homage but you know pretty pretty far afield and, and there's obviously and i think for very valid reasons it, it, it would be hard if not impossible to do a straight you know it's just a straight adaptation of of the cosmic things but my my initial thought once they got to the once they got to the eternals was oh you know they've run out of bankable characters but again something that gets lost in all this is thor and iron man weren't really mainstream characters in the way that they are now
0: no you're right absolutely they were i thought um when marvel studios started or mcu stuff started everyone thought the superhero stuff was over because all the A-listers had been used and that Marvel were just left with the sort of dregs. And, uh, yeah, and Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, is an even better example of that. You know, who even get, who even in comics cared about those characters, really? And yet um, the, the film worked. But I, I also think the MCU was like just one big Fantastic Four movie without the Fantastic Four in it, and that's kind of why it worked. It's all just... Kirby, you know, the best MCU films are those that incorporate all that Kirby, Lee, and Ditko stuff, and it's the non-Kirby Lee, Ditko stuff that maybe struggles a little bit. I don't know. But, it, yeah. it's. I find it interesting to watch, but equally but it, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's how the comics are also reacting, or not reacting. They, they, you know, Comics don't know what to do with themselves now, or Marvel Comics or DC Comics. I would say that that's
1: probably more or less been the case since even the. I was going to say the nineties, but probably, probably even the eighties at this point. Yeah, much like the
0: M- MCU, they they were kind of a victim of their own success. I remember, um, <coughs> excuse me, going, "Oh, I can't buy crossovers anymore," and that was when Secret Wars came out. I went, "I'm not buying this stuff," <laughs> and opting out. And that was um, over 35 years ago. And now that seems quite tame compared to the sort of relentless crossover stuff they seem to do these days.
1: It is funny that you use a Fantastic Four as an example specifically because they've keep, they keep failing to make like a Fantastic Four movie that anybody yeah. cares about. Yeah.
0: It's kind of weird. It's ironic, isn't it? Because I do think the MCU is like so, owes so much to those first, you know, those first hundred issues of Fantastic Four. And it's even sort of dynamic, dynamics between characters, you know, are kind of lifted, even if they're not the characters themselves. And yeah. And yeah. But yeah, it'd be interesting. I think they plan a Fantastic Four film, don't they, next year or two? Let's see if people are receptive to it. There's a very specific template that they have now for these movies, and they can just plug the Fantastic Four right into that. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the most obscure Marvel character that you would like to see a movie made out of? It is a good question. (laughs) Because it could happen now. I would have to think about this. Mine is Night Raven. Who's like um uh in the late seventies marvel u k made their own co- Marvel comics basically for um occasionally, and they created a character called Night Raven. It was drawn by David Lloyd and it was created by Steve parkhouse and it was a precursor, and um uh it's kind of like a f- the foreshadowing of Viva vendetta and it's this sort of nineteen thirties uh Um, sort of obsessive vigilante in a a raincoat who goes around branding criminals and killing them. And this was like for 10-year-old boys. It was brilliant. A Punisher precursor, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. They were really good, um, short, you know, done in one, or done with brevity stories. I would love for that to be a movie. Um, Yeah, I imagine... um, everyone would love it. <laughs> David Lloyd, he um David Lloyd he does um he uh, manages an online comic called Aces Weekly and Why Don't You Love Me was originally serialized in A- um Aces Weekly over about 10 volumes I think it was. Um so yeah.
1: Now it's very obvious to me but it hadn't really occurred to me there's something about writers and artists from the United Kingdom more broadly because I would certainly include uh Grant Morrison in this but and Al- Alan Moore is the 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 most obvious example but th- the the ability to really kind of reinvent some of these or reimagine some of these uh whether they're obscure or whether they had kind of run their course you know the the obvious example with um Grant Morrison is is, is Animal Man or you know you've got uh with Moore you've got Swamp Thing but to really to take these old characters and really hang something entirely new on them.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about this uh, the other day, and I wondered if it's because, certainly in the 80s, I wondered if it's because someone like Grant Morrison or Alan Moore, they also liked, I guess this is true of American creators, but it feels because perhaps we're culturally smaller, we're a small country, we live much closer to each other, perhaps. So therefore, the idea of doing a comic, it makes sense to you that you would incorporate your outside interests into it. Um, And I think Moore was doing that with something. He he looked at it and saw an opportunity to talk about ecological issues, I guess. And Morrison enjoyed superhero stuff, but thought, how can I make him a bit cooler and interesting?
1: Now that I'm really thinking about it, I I think it is a product of of a couple things. The first one being that, you know, certainly if you're going to work with one of the big two that, for obvious reasons, you know, they want you to use their their IP, right? I mean, they know that established characters effectively sell more comics. But if you've got somebody like Animal Man or, or Swamp Thing, they are really more blank slates because, you know, nobody's done with anything with them for so long that you really can take something like that and mold it into your own image
0: yeah yeah and of course um the swamp thing i don't know if you remember it was a bit difficult for successive writers for a long long time on that book a lot of people kind of f- seem to fall by the wayside who succeeded alan moore on it i mean rick vetch was a really good run but there are others who who inherited it that who whose runs are. Unfortunately, just didn't couldn't compare, I think. But then later on, I think Morrison and Mark Miller did a run, which just decided to upend everything Alan Moore did. And I think that's all you could do to sort of push back against that big benchmark. Maybe it's a symptom of the
1: characters, but probably more so a symptom of having to follow someone who is probably a literal genius. Yeah, were you on Neil Gaiman's radar
0: because of the because of your work with Paul and Escape? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't think Neil Gaiman knew who I was before. Um, Drawn and Quarterly sent him a copy. So yeah, when I when I saw that quote and Drawn and Quarterly sent me the quote, I I pretty much fell out of my chair. I was quite flabbergasted because it's quite a, quite a quite a gushing quote i thought it started off it's like a story in itself it started off went, oh no (laughs) i you know i've got a a copy of the hardcover in front of me
1: number one the only text on the back of this book is the neil gaiman quote but it's long enough that it it Mm. doesn't seem awkward that it's the only text and it really i mean i yeah as i started reading this i was like i don't like i trust drawn and quarterly to do a lot of stuff but this is a really weird Pull quote because, you know, within the second sentence, he says uh, he compares it to a quote, slightly vapid early 2000s story that's basically a cartoonist way of telling you that they hated everyone and everything, which, oof.
0: Yeah. Now, I have to tell you, when I was telling people the quote, I would normally, uh, my friends, I'd normally stop there <laughs> and they, their mouths would fall open. I
1: think this is probably overstated, but, you know, there there is that sort of classic. That cliche of "Hey, if it evokes any kind of big reaction in somebody, you know, you're doing something right."
0: Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, fe- I knew when I was doing it, I felt that that was a re- kind of an okay thing to say, because I knew I was managing expectations when I was writing and drawing it, and I was purposefully, um, allowing readers to think something at least along those lines i guess so i was i was kind of pleased you know that it seemed to work it got picked you know that attempt to manage the story in that way got noted
1: i I really need to go back and and give it more attention reread it um kind of i kind of because of the travel i mentioned before i kind of crammed it but it is it is one of the slowest burns in comics that i have ever read (laughs) Oh, really? <laughs> cool. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, slow burn from the standpoint of just like it, that it's very slow to really start unraveling, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I, 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 well, I'm, I'm, yeah, because, yeah, it's, imagine making it, you know, how slow that was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I, well, I knew what it was ish, mainly when I started it. And I knew, in my mind, I broke because it was originally serialized in *Aces Weekly*, and they do. It would have been twenty-one pages at a time. I, in my mind, I would go. Well, in this twenty-one pages, I need to establish this, this, and this. And I've got, and because the page is a um, a fake Sunday comic strip, it has to work on its own terms in some way have a punchline even if that punchline isn't necessarily funny and and so it that became the sort of focus and i knew that i needed to really as you say slow burn it i don't think that's how i would have now you say that's exactly what i was doing but I, i i saw it as um you were pacing yourself yeah yeah how do i manage the impact of things, you know, and I guess you have to make. Um, I, I feel you have to make people like the characters, even if they're unlikable, you know, and or have some understanding of the characters, and that means, you know, maybe they do funny things or awful things, but something, you know, that involves you, so that when things start unraveling you're invested in that. I don't know, but that that was at least what I attempted to do, I
1: guess. And I appreciate where he's coming from because I would describe the early strips as being detached if not nihilistic of these two just
0: objectively terrible parents. Yeah, and I sent it um when I was do because it took me a few years to complete. I think early on I sent the first 20 pages to a publisher over here in the UK. And um, they, they pretty much, they didn't, it's one of those publishers that doesn't say, no, it's not for us, but comes back to you and makes it clear that it's still not for them, if you know what I mean. They say,
1: Can you dramatically alter everything
0: about this thing that you sent us? And um, yeah, so they pretty much described it as nihilistic. Um, yeah. And, I, and part of the thing, I would have to take breaks whilst drawing it because of that. Because as I said, it, you know, when you're drawing it, you're living with it much more than, you know, more intensity than when you're reading it, or as because it's a longer period of time. I'd have to take these breaks of a couple of weeks every now and then, because just to sort of detoxify myself from what I was doing, um, which is not really how I have worked with other things in the past. It is a gambit. And especially
1: now that you say that it was serialized, it, it's especially particularly a gambit in that case of you know that you're not going to perhaps get exactly where you need to be you know that it that it that it may take you the length of a book to to really get there um and to sort of it's it's a big gamble to expect that people are going to stick with it
0: and you Uh, well one of the things um so originally it was serialized in aces weekly and then when that finished I posted an episode a week online for you know my my people on social media and I I was interested to know how people reacted to it because online you know that people are going to miss weeks you know and they might come in six months into it or part way through and I was interested to know if they would then seek out previous episodes and try and catch up or just accept that's where they were. And if they still got something from it, it's, you talked about the internet earlier. I was thinking very much of like um, how pre-internet you might discover something. And I always think of, in my case, a good example was Seinfeld, where I didn't really, really get into it until about season four or five. And then um, I started telling friends that I really liked this show. And one of my friends said, well, I've got a bunch on video. And I remember he gave, loaned me a bunch of video cassettes, but they weren't marked anyway. So I was watching them in the wrong order. These previous episodes, some of which I'd seen already, some of which I hadn't. And it made uh, so I was kind of thinking of that experience. I wanted to see if people engaged with it differently, and but equally, I didn't want to ask people if that's what they were doing. <laughs> so I got some people who offered a little bit of um response which and that was always interesting it's like when um, you discover a, a band you really like and it's their third album and you couldn't get their that catalog quite so easily whereas to, today if you today if you discover Seinfeld you just go to Netflix and say season 1 episode 1 and it just pulls through in strict chronological chronological order you know prior to the internet you would have had to um as I say borrow dodgy video cassette collections and i I wondered if I could tr- kind of recreate that to some degree by just posting one episode a week I don't know if I did I like the idea of having an exhibition of my of the artwork for it in a room and it's all the you don't but you don't know where to start when you read the artwork I just wonder if how long people would engage with it, how they, if they'd read left to right or downwards or – do you know what I mean? And still find that they could enjoy it.
1: Was that part of the rationale as far as making these strips?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I felt that – I don't think we get Sunday comic strips anymore, do we? Not in newspapers. I mean, I don't buy newspapers No, I mean, they're more, online. I mean, probably they exist somewhere. Yeah. But there used to be a big cultural presence, I, you know, when I was younger and, it, it, you know, you'd read comics that you bought yourself, but then there was a kind of comic that sort of existed in this thing that your parents brought into the house, you know, and, and I've, I've, you know, I liked the idea of capturing that in some way, I guess. That sort of, yeah, that speaking to people who were normal people who, didn't even realize they were reading comics
1: there's more chronology here than there is in you know a a 30-minute sitcom for example um you know in that it uh it it doesn't quite start over at the end of every episode it does continue one for the other but but there is a sense in which because this is set up at a punchline and because these are theoretically self-contained strips that you can read them in you can read them out of order
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, but also, I knew that it would would work as a collection, or I felt that it would because I sat through and read all those Peanuts collections that Fantagraphics published a few years ago, and they were just utterly compelling. And that it felt the experience of it is that you sort of, the narratively, you get to the end of the page and there's a punchline or a thing, and then you turn to the next page, and there might be like a slight step back or do you know what i mean it it still works it's not it's not a you know um it's not off-putting but also allows you to put a a bookmark in the book and take a break wherever you like pretty much you don't have to get to an end of a chapter because there's a constant break point maybe i'm glad you brought up both seinfeld and peanuts because
1: Where my brain went initially when we're talking about effectively nihilistic characters who, for whatever reason you do, end up rooting for Um, Seinfeld. I initially went to Seinfeld and, you know, more contemporary and also UK. I was thinking about Peep Show because I think that fits that mold as well. But you really can go back to Peanuts and Charlie Brown because there is a sense of, obviously very funny, but there is a sense of nihilism that runs through a
0: lot of those strips. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think my the early formative "Why Don't You Love Me" was this idea of a couple getting divorced, and I was going to have them not have any children in it, and do it as a Sunday comic strip because I had a day job at that time, and that's the most I imagined I would be able to do a week. And um, the idea was that we were going; these were going to be Charlie Brown's parents, Charlie's and Sally's parents it was going to be a really bad divorce and i hoped that that might provide an explanation as to why charlie brown is the way he is yeah i thought i thought i was going to be really clever are you an ivan brunetti fan um no i don't know who that is
1: i guarantee you've seen some of his work he was a um i mean he's still still around and still he's mostly teaching now at uh in in chicago he had a several books come out on fanographics he was really kind of a um I would say contemporary of, you know, Dan Klaus, Chris Ware, those people. Oh, right. Okay. He did a full page comic about what happened to Shermie. Oh, right. Shermie was the uh, original main character of Peanuts before Charlie Brown really took
0: over. Oh, yeah. Ah, Why don't I remember that? It's because I hammered them over a period of a year, like 50 years worth of peanut strips
1: if you go back and read the the really early peanut strips uh he's 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 there he's just he kind of i think he sort of stuck around but became one of those really generic side
0: characters but he was kind of the focal point there for a bit so i remember linus i don't remember linus having a brother when i was a kid when we used because it used to appear in um the newspaper, my, yeah i just thought it was um linus to be fair he he's yeah. just a smaller linus I, I I recognize um, Ivan Brunetti's artwork now. I've brought it up on... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I've not um, read any for some reason. I've read bits and pieces. I think he's done stuff in like... Um, um, a lot of anthologies. Yeah, I think it's in anthologies that I've seen his stuff.
1: Peanuts is really kind of the perfect template for that because there's a lot of things that, for the sake of his work, just go unsaid.
0: Yeah. um so so in why don't you love me there's a reason why mark has a job that he has and um, that's because charlie brown i think says that his father is a barber or at least that's what i remembered stuff like that kind of is in there and the two kids have are called charlie and sally although one of them keeps getting called tommy so that might, um yeah yeah so that um um yeah, so there's sort of those sorts of references in mind. But it was isn't dominant, it is just sort of present, I guess, as I didn't realize until I reread Peanuts a few years ago how prominent it was in my comic cultural life prior to that, I guess, and I felt that I wanted to reference it. And I like the idea that there was a time where everyone knew what peanuts was. And and it was a comic, you know. They didn't think of it as just a cartoon show. Well, Snoopy certainly is still very much in the cultural consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did a Snoopy movie, didn't? Was it a um, ch- uh, Charlie Brown movie about ten years ago? I think it was actually called the Peanuts movie, and and which is right. interesting because you know if
1: you go back and look at all of the er, the the early Peanuts cartoons, they never really said peanuts in them. It was always a Charlie Brown something or other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You do wonder if they'll kind of do a reimagining, some corporate reimagining of Charlie Brown where he's, I don't know, playing computer games and on a skateboard. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know skateboards have been around for decades. That's not a good example. But uh, yeah, and computer games.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any room for debate that penises. is... One of, or possibly even the greatest comic, or at least greatest newspaper comic of all time, and it feels like this perfect artifact. They've, they've actually they've done a remarkably good job. I, I I haven't seen the new movie. I suspect that there are some modern takes in there, you know, because if you are attracting a younger audience, you know, it, do, it does need some reference. But they've, for what it is, and for how much they've updated every single other thing, they've done a remarkably good job. I think preserving some semblance of Schultz's vision for the characters.
0: Right. I, I mean, I, just, I think I started watching it cause it was on Netflix a few years ago. And, um, for some reason it wasn't because I was, I objected to it, but for some reason I wasn't, I didn't get past about 10 minutes. Maybe someone knocked me at the door or something, but, um, I always think, Oh, I keep meaning to go back and watch it, but you always find something else. Don't you? too much choice
1: the other element of it too is that peanuts as a strip perfect those early cartoons those first few at least um christmas and great pumpkin certainly jump out yeah. are also perfect but for different reasons
0: so i can't remember much about them but i mean they were on here in the uk but they were in i think in america they were like big tv events weren't they they were am i right
1: the original Peanuts cartoon, the original uh, Charlie Brown came up came out at some point in the sixties. But in much the same way that Peanuts as a strip is very idiosyncratic, they are as well. That you know they, you know, the animation is really of its time. All the voices are non professional children, they kids aren't
0: they? Proper children, yeah.
1: Which was very unusual time, and then you add in this uh, uh, soundtrack by by Vince Guaraldi, the jazz pianist, and also. That first one in particular, I recommend going back and watching it because it's it's really quiet and it, and and they really allow it to breathe in a way mm. that I mean certainly children's cartoons don't ne- don't now you know I, I suspect that maybe kids now would would find at least elements of it boring but it was very quiet and
0: and I found that as a child I
1: found that to be very entrancing.
0: A friend of mine, um, a couple of years ago gave me a 12-inch picture disc of the soundtrack to those Peanuts cartoons. And it has a big, giant Charlie Brown head on one side and a big, giant Lucy head on the other. And I always play it every Christmas. <laughs> so even though I would say... So if they were on over here, but there wasn't like a big... You know, they were just plonked on during the Christmas holidays, I think, in the morning somewhere. Um, we still have that sort of Affection for it, I guess that association, that Christmas association. I just remember um, scenes of all the characters dancing at a disco.
1: They're on a school auditorium right. stage, and they're just yeah. doing their their goofy little dance, isn't it?
0: They're goofy dancing. Yeah,
1: it's a rare example that the the adaptation of this great existing work was also great, but but for different reasons, and I think is also made it even more difficult to.
0: Make subsequent adaptations, yeah, Schultz was involved though, wasn't he I think, and he and so the changes yeah. they made, like Snoopy, for example, doesn't you don't you're not privy to his thoughts like we are in the comic strip, he just is a silent character, isn't he, but you uh, you understand what he's thinking by his behavior, I guess it is a
1: difficult book to talk about because. And I don't know where you are with this, but Neil Gaiman alludes to this a little bit. The publisher's weekly uh, review is a little bit more upfront about it. But I I do think that this is a book that you're, that when I'm talking about it, especially at this early stage, that I'm hesitant to really talk about uh, the way the story evolves.
0: Yeah, it's a bit difficult. Uh, um, Yeah. No, it is the things about the reveal, isn't it? So um, I always tell people it's a family sitcom about a dysfunctional family that, at the end of the day, still don't love each other. But I don't really think that's representative. <laughs> but it's a good lure, isn't it?
1: I guess you have to figure out who you're you're selling it to specifically, because I think that there are certainly people who, you know, Neil Gaiman being a prime example, are more interested in because of that. Because of that shift in the narrative, and I don't know if you're if you're just pitching it as a dysfunctional family sitcom, it's not wrong, and you're not lying exactly, but you might be setting people up for failure. Yeah,
0: or um, delight. <laughs> yeah, I might, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but it's. it's I think the reason I was I, I shared that with you is because I don't. I agree with you in that it's. I'm trying to avoid giving too much away about the book and what really happens. But apart from there's, there's two awful, neglectful parents who are too preoccupied with whatever it is that's bothering them individually and two kids that need them. You know, but it's there's more going on than that. But they even that, I feel, is spoiling it. Even saying that, I felt, oh, I've ruined it now anyone who's coming to read it. How well developed was, I mean, it sounds like early on that you had some
1: idea of where things were going, but perhaps, you know, not entirely.
0: Well, I, so when I did There's No Time at the Present, which was my escape books graphic novel, I knew exactly how it was going to end. And that took me about eight years to do. So it's all kind of like, you know, being restrained. With this one, I knew what I wanted to, well, the characters, can't, I knew I was manoeuvring the characters around and I knew a big event would happen at some point in it, what, you know, where that event happens. And I knew that, um, but then I didn't really know how it was going to end. And as I was working on it, and st- I started, I, I thought this is going to be the most depressing, nihilistic thing I've ever, ever done. How do I, because the logic of it, meant that it could only be that and so the characters were in a way talking to me so there's a discourse between characters later in the story where they go well if that's true then why couldn't this be true do you know what i mean and it sort of may at least provided a um but that that wasn't something i would thought of early in the process that's something that occurred to me like relatively late in the process of doing it and I was so delighted because it just felt so perfect. I don't think this is a spoiler necessarily,
1: but you know, what they say is effectively what they say is there's so many people in existence right now, it it's pro- it's highly unlikely that we're the only people that this has happened to.
0: Yeah. It's it's arrogant to think that it's only them that this is happening to. And um yeah. Uh yeah. Um Yes, but I I, I try and take that approach to everything, you know, um, that if how how you feel about something, you're not going to be the only one that feels that way about it. And sharing it creatively will maybe speak to someone in some way who's also experiencing that or feeling that thing you're feeling. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, that's always been my uh, uh, how I've got over my insecurities about the comics I make. I can't be the only one that thinks this. Do you know? So,
1: And the only thing I'll say that's moderately spoiling, I, I think there's a moment, and it's directly related to that, on a, a visceral or emotional level, the thing that really grabbed me is there. one of the strips t- very much toward the end. There's a moment where they find out what's happening on their smartphones. And that just really... That put things into sharp relief for me because that's it's that's exactly how it would or perhaps will happen.
0: Yeah, people get notifications, set up notifications, don't they, on their phones for news events and things. So it seemed to me that that's something that would happen. I also remember like um, uh, uh, a few years ago, I'm in my 50s, a few years ago trying to text people um just after on the first of January, just after midnight, and um not being able to get any text through through to anybody because the network was jammed and you know that sort of thing. And also because um what happened is the second time I deal with that event where it's slightly more explicit as to what it is um, we'd gone through the pandemic by that point when I was writing and drawing it. So I was able to kind of reference. Well, I was surprised at how right I was the first time I did it <laughs> by just guessing. Um, but the, the second time I was able to sort of, you know, reference people, people's, you know, sociological behaviors, I guess, um, a bit more um accurately um so yeah but yes i think people would on their mobile phones out out and about but i also want it's like story convenience as well in a way you know i needed i didn't want characters learning in a way that didn't feel like other things were moving forward so for example when Claire learns about it, she's interacting with a neighbour of hers who you may or may not remember we'd seen previously in the story and I needed to, um, but it was an ambiguous reference to this character and I needed to find a way of referring back to that character again so that people understood who he was and so I, I was sort of doubling up there so I was always very pleased with myself when I was able to do that, do two or three things at once, refer back to a character I needed to clarify and establish something else that was driving the story forward. So it, it was, it's convenient then that people would learn about something like that on their mobile devices. Yeah. I don't think I would. I think I would. And, and for that
1: reason, it just, it feels very, it feels very real
0: to me. Yeah I think I've switched off those kind of alerts on my phone. So um yeah I, I yeah I've kind of got a smartphone that doesn't behave smartly.
1: <laughs> I mean that's an entirely different story to it's, it's kind of be the the last person to find out about it is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well that's kind of what happens with the characters in the first part of the book. But they were sort of they kind of know it's happening but they're just pretending it isn't
1: i almost see you or or somebody else who has you know very intentionally taken that out of for for the sake of i think mental health has has removed that from their lives um suddenly being awash and you know if they live in a city suddenly being awash in this chaos and really not having any idea what's going on
0: yeah but i think it's impossible to isn't it i mean
1: don't you think I think it's entirely possible to have a good 20 minutes of just pure chaos around you and and not know what's going on. But yeah. but 20 minutes is maybe the
0: upper threshold no more than no more than half a day I would say before before you um you are exposed to It's interesting I I I've um tried to manage my news. I used to be a bit of a news hound, news junkie. And then, um, I went, no, I don't want to, I don't want to see headlines, blah, 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 unless I'm purposefully going to seek them out. And then I had a job, um, the last job I had, proper job, was at this company in their office. And they had all these big, um, TVs on the wall that just ran News 24, BBC News 24 all day and you just couldn't get away from it and when he went on the intranet it opened up um microsoft's news page you know msn news page you can't even choose to opt out <laughs> it's it's compuls- compulsory um I, mean, I don't know if you get that had that experience in your job
1: but that's a good metaphor for technology isn't it it's that it's impossible to opt out
0: yeah yeah even if you have a dumb phone You'll find that when you go to the office, it's all on the screen. And of course, once you see a headline, you're not, you kind of, go, well, that can't be, I need to find out the full information before I come to a conclusion. Otherwise my mind assumes the worst. Do you know what I mean? And then you're back in the trap of consuming every bit of news you can. I just had to install it. I just, I, I just couldn't anymore. Oh, really? Oh. Uh, I, just, huh. I, I still do twitter but is it not is it what they pump at you that you don't choose to follow or um i have a personal stake in this i'm,
1: I'm jewish myself um and, yeah. and really
0: uh after all of the the
1: kanye stuff um oh yeah all of this stuff that just was went unspoken for a long see seeing it bubbling up and just seeing people just be very Very naked and open about it. um, I I got to a point where it just was. I mean, honestly, like it was hurting my feelings.
0: I just I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I'm sorry you had to had that. Um, Yeah, because people are making saying, "Well, he's obviously got mental health issues," as if that diminishes what was said in some way. You know, obviously he's got mental health issues, but it's. I think he gave a lot of bad people permission to do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know a great deal about Kanye West. I stopped paying attention to. I got his first two albums. He made some very good music, and it's really sad. Yeah, he just went a bit. What, what, I think once I saw him, was it Taylor Swift? <laughs> he interrupted on stage once. I think oh, I'm over this bloke. <laughs> yeah,
1: he, but, uh, he is not over himself, but
0: no, but that yeah, I, I totally, totally understand that. Yeah. I still do Twitter, but I, I purposefully go in once a day. Now, I don't check it all the time anymore. But I, um, and what I would like Twitter to do is just list all the people you follow, their tweets in chronological order, and any, any, I might, anything they retweet I get, but I'm not interested in anything they like or anyone else they follow, but do you know what I mean, or anything else like that. And I, and I don't... It infuriates me that Twitter is this awful algorithm that pumps stuff like that you saw, that you've experienced, do you know what I mean? At you.
1: It's engagement. It's all about driving engagement. And unfortunately, uh, the things that that drive engagement are generally not good things. Awful racism.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you see that. You're going to drill down to try and find out more. Twitter interprets that as as uh, a positive interaction, and then pumps oh, the Jews are trending. You. I wonder if this.
1: I wonder if it's good yeah, news yeah. or not. It's never yeah. good news
0: when the Jews are trending. No. Ball. I, I, I find it heartbreaking that we that this that the world seems worse than when I was, you know, fifteen or twenty. You know, and that this stuff feels that these conversation these awful conversations these idiots have, they think are legitimate. And not regressive and awful.